Church family, if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you, if you would, to open them up, turn them on. Join me, if you will, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. If you're our guest this morning, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Mark in a series that we have entitled um, Astonished and Amazed, as we are meeting Jesus Christ in His Word and having a response to Him as Mark intends us to. And so if you're, I guess, also want to remind you, you should have hopefully on your way in received a Connect card. We would love for you to fill that out, leave it in your seat uh, when you leave, or give it to myself or to a deacon or someone that maybe kind of sort of looks like they know what they're doing. Um, and we would love for, to connect with you uh, in ministry. And so this morning we're looking again in Mark chapter 6. Growing up, I was never much of an athlete. My brothers got those gifts. Part of my problem as an athlete was I had a really hard time staying focused. I can still remember my dad off to the sideline at the baseball games yelling at me, keep your head in the game, Weasel. That was my nickname, Weasel. Please, no, you do not have permission to use that moving forward. And hopefully it means nothing of my character today. But he would call out to me there because I would get distracted and my head wasn't in the game. And that was a source of many mistakes, not only on the field, but off the field in my life is distraction. We can still see it at the level of professional sports today, as any number of reasons can, can come and play into an outfielder or a wide receiver or a football player dropping a pass. Maybe that outfielder gets cocky because it's a simple fly ball that they've caught thousands of times before, and so they're not even really concerned about it or worried about it, and so they just accidentally miss and they drop the ball. Or maybe it's the wide receiver who sees the pass coming and then sees the wide open field in front of them that is going to result in, in a great touchdown that's going to save the game. And in anticipation for what he's about to do, he forgets that he needs to catch the ball first and he drops it. Or maybe it's that tight end who's doing the crossing route right across the middle of the field and he sees that big old linebacker coming right at him and he knows as soon as I touch this ball, I'm about to get hit and hit hard. And in the process of bracing himself for the impact, he misses the catch and drops the ball. And dropping the ball, like I said, isn't limited to just sport. It shows up in all of our lives. It's easy for us to become distracted uh, by many things and miss opportunities that should be easy for us to pick up right in front of us. And we miss opportunities for ministry to our family, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, ministry opportunities even within the church itself. Because we're often so distracted, we miss needs that are right in front of us. And worse than that, we often miss needs that are deep inside of us as well. In the verses that we're looking at this morning, we're going to see Jesus' compassion lead him to provide for people's needs. So look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 30 this morning. Mark writes, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. 
And they said to him, how shall, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So, so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it, were made well. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the majesty of Jesus Christ and the example that he set for us. Thank you for the disciples. The example, Father God, that they set for us as well. Thank you for the testimony of your word. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that even now you would impart to me the gift to speak well what it is that you have laid on my heart. And even to speak those things, Father God, that need be spoken that are not yet on my heart in this moment. I surrender this time completely to you, to your grace and to your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Just by way of a bit of review, just really quickly, we are in a section of Mark that is still characterized as the parabolic ministry of Jesus Christ. If you'll remember, parables, both spoken and acted out by Jesus Christ, are meant to expose some spiritual reality to expose and, and to speak forth some spiritual truth. Jesus began preaching in parables, and in that time he began speaking about the nature and the power of the kingdom of God. He then went on a couple of weeks ago, as we were looking back in Mark chapter 4 and chapter 5, he began to display his power, the power of God, to his disciples and to the world that was around him. And so we saw that Jesus' parabolic actions, his miracles, exposed the reality that he is God come in the flesh. He does what only God is supposed to be able to do. And last week we saw in the section that um, Brother Danny preached, and I'm grateful to him for filling in for me last week, we saw that as powerful as Jesus' ministry was, his mission and his ministry and his message was something that was rejected by mankind. And it was something that he warned his disciples, and, and he, we saw in John's ministry that it was rejected. And now we find out that as powerful as Jesus is, 
That the God who created the universe is nevertheless the same God, as powerful as he is, who steps into the problems of people's lives and shows compassion. Jesus is God in the flesh, yes, and he has come to selflessly serve mankind. We see it first in the fact that in his compassion, Jesus Christ provided for the neglected. When Jesus uh, receives his disciples, his disciples are excited because they've just come off of the mission field. They've just come in from the mission that Jesus Christ had sent them out. And they had gone, and if you'll remember, they had preached the message that Jesus had preached. And they started performing the same miraculous deeds that Jesus did as they healed people. And they were given the authority and the power to cast out demons. And now they're here and they've returned to Jesus Christ and they're excited with the opportunity to give a status report. But Jesus prioritizes the care of his disciples in this moment and so he recognizes their need to get away for a time of rest. Rest is important for us. God established the pattern of rest from the very beginning of creation in the Garden of Eden. Because it's a reminder to you and I that unlike God, we do not have a limitless supply of energy in our bodies. We all need rest. Pastors need rest, and so I'm grateful for the opportunity that my family and I had to get away for a little bit uh, the week before last on vacation. We all need rest, and so Jesus prioritizes that rest, and he pulls his disciples away to a desolate place, a place where nobody was supposed to be. And yet the crowds are so excited about Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the disciples, they recognize them and they follow them and they actually outpace them on the land and they beat Jesus and his disciples to the other side. And we can sense in the disciples almost a sense of, of disappointment and irritation at this. Because they've just spent time away from Jesus Now they finally get an opportunity to be with Jesus again, and they're ready to tell him about everything that has taken place. And then somebody else gets in the way. Jesus, though, doesn't see the crowd as an interruption. He is getting away to rest himself. Instead of seeing them as an interruption, he sees through eyes that mirror the eyes of the Lord, and he looks upon them, and he has compassion on them. He's literally moved, even to the depths of his stomach. He's moved for the condition of these people because he sees them, and Scripture tells us that they are like sheep without a shepherd. Mark, again, is emphasizing that they are in a desolate place. Three times in this passage of Scripture, he tells us that Jesus and the disciples are in a desolate place, a desert place. And that, I do believe, doesn't just show us their physical condition. It also exposes some of their spiritual condition as well because Jesus sees these people are neglected. They're neglected by the people who are supposed to be caring for them, supposed to be providing for them. This happens immediately following and in contrast to the feast that we saw last week of Herod the king where Herod the king threw a party for himself and he left absolutely no desire in his life, no matter how sinful, unfulfilled. Even if it meant the the violation of his stepdaughter. The violation of his own honor. This hideous display of grandeur and pomp and wealth. Herod's all about himself. 
And we're going to see next week that those that are meant to be the spiritual leaders of these people are only heaping burden upon burden upon burden on them, and they are not, in fact, caring for them. So the people of Israel at this time are a neglected people. Their leadership has pushed them aside and prioritized their own wants and desires above their duty to these people. And so Jesus steps in as that perfect shepherd that was repeatedly promised throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 40, verse 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Jeremiah 3.15 says this way. I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. And that's exactly what Jesus does in this moment. He feeds them first with knowledge and understanding. Because as he looks out upon them and is is moved with compassion to meet their needs, the first thing that he does is he begins to teach them. Jesus prioritizes their spiritual condition over their physical condition. As he spends the day instructing them in the truths of God, we have to understand from this that that is our priority as well. If we are little Christs, Christians like Jesus, we must prioritize the spiritual condition of our family and of our friends, of our neighbors, of our coworkers, and even strangers on the street. No matter how desperate a person's physical circumstances might be, we have to understand that they pale in comparison to the eternal nature of their spiritual condition. Physical circumstances can be changed. They come and they go. They ebb and they flow. But a spiritual condition has the the ability to last for eternity. So if there is someone who is separated from God because they have not received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, then that individual is facing an infinitely greater circumstance in the, the possibility of spending eternity separated from God in hell than the cancer that they're facing right now. So Jesus prioritizes the spiritual condition of these people. And the disciples couldn't see them with that same compassion as the Lord. And as I said earlier, there's a note of irritation in their voice as they have the audacity to command Jesus to send them away. Send them away, let them go and get something to eat. They're hungry people, get them out of here because we can't provide for them. Which makes it all that shocking when Jesus turns turns the table on them and says, no, you feed them. Because if you'll remember, they had just gotten back from this missionary journey and the instructions that Jesus gave them back in Mark chapter 5, or earlier in Mark chapter 6, is take no money and take no bread, but rely upon the hospitality of the people that you meet. And these men who had been living on the hospitality of others for potentially months have no hospitality in themselves for the thousands that are gathered in front of them. So Jesus says, find what you have and bring it to me. And so they bring to him what little they have. And from those meager portions, Jesus takes these five simple loaves and these five little salted smoked fish, and he blesses the Lord. And then he proceeds to distribute. He gives to the disciples who are then commissioned to give to the crowds that have been placed in order, just like you have sections in here. So Jesus gives them sections and they sit down. 
And the disciples come to Jesus and they get the food and they take the food to the people and they come back to Jesus and Jesus has more food for them and they take it to the people. And they keep going backwards and forwards until all of a sudden over 5,000 individuals. We don't actually know how many were at this table, but if there were men, if there were women and children on top of this, we could be looking upwards of ten to 15,000 people in this desolate place as the good shepherd takes this desolate place and turns it into a banquet hall. And he sits and he distributes until all of the need is met. And he goes above and beyond what they ever could have possibly imagined. Not only are they satisfied, there's doggy bags. And I'm not talking about little doggy bags. I'm not even talking about lunch pails. The, the word used here for basket would have been a basket that every Jew carried around, and it was almost characteristic of them as a people. It was a large basket that would have held food and potentially a, a, a bedroll and, and a, even a, a, a change of clothes down in there. It's, it's almost the size of a suitcase, and there are 12 of those bad boys left over. One for each of those disciples who beforehand were concerned that they wouldn't be able to meet this need. Jesus might have prioritized the spiritual needs of his people, but he didn't neglect their physical needs either. We oftentimes find it easy to prioritize meeting the physical needs of people around us, because after all, isn't that Christian ministry? We're supposed to, to meet the needs of the community and neglect the spiritual condition. But Jesus prioritized both. He made it his point to to speak to their spiritual needs, to instruct them, but also to meet their physical needs. Love looks like something, ladies and gentlemen. Love like faith is an action that can only be seen in its action. And so if we are going to speak love into the world and we are going to speak spiritual truth into the world, we must also be willing to live out that spiritual truth with every decision, every resource at our disposal. And that's what Jesus invites the disciples to do as we see Jesus bringing them in as Jesus is continuing to prioritize the discipleship of the disciples. Because from the moment back in uh, earlier on in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus commissions the disciples, you'll see that the disciples have an increasingly important interactive role in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Prior to Mark chapter 6, they are bystanders just like everybody else. As Jesus does the healing and as Jesus does the teaching and as Jesus sets people free from demons. Now they are active participants with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, though he is the source of the miracle, now invites the disciples to be extenders, if you will, extensions of his miraculous power. They become the hands and feet of Jesus to feed the 5,000. As you and I are now invited and called and commissioned and commanded as children of God to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our lives. Because God could at any moment decide to step into our world and miraculously bring a healing or a, or a salvation or, a, or a, 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 a rescue from some dark situation. But God most often loves to work through people. Ordinary men and women who are faithful to position themselves in obedience to serve and provide for the needs of others. And so the disciples, though they were distracted with what they didn't have, 
Jesus asks them to be faithful with what they did. So often you and I, just like them, can be distracted by what we don't have. We put off till tomorrow the conversation that we need to have with that person that we love, that we care for, to confront them in their sin, to invite them to know Jesus Christ. We want to wait until we know a little bit more, until we're a little bit more comfortable with with our relationship with them or with God's word. So we wait because we're concerned about what we don't have, the skills we don't have. Or we're waiting until we get that debt paid off. Or we're waiting until we get this particular uh, milestone of our financial security set before we start being generous with God's ministries in our community or through the church. Because we're prioritizing what we have. To keep it for ourselves. But what Jesus does is he invites them to give to them not what they don't have, but what they do have. And he takes what they do have and he does more with it than they ever could have possibly imagined. So Jesus invites us in our lives to give him and be faithful with what we do have. And trust that he will give us more. Because the Bible says, those who are faithful with little, much more will be given. So we must be faithful with that. And God's kingdom and his provision shows that it's not dependent upon what we have, but on who he is and what he has the ability to do. So Jesus does more than they could have ever possibly imagined. All it took was their willingness to surrender to him in the first place and to give him what they did have. We also see that Jesus provided not just for the neglected, he also provided for these disciples who were hard-hearted. Jesus, immediately after the miracle, he sends the twelve away. We don't really have, Mark doesn't give us insight into why exactly he sends them away with such fervency and such urgency. Maybe it was because they had meant to get away for rest and that was clearly interrupted and so Jesus is sending them off on their way so that maybe if he's not with them, they'll finally be able to find a little bit of rest once they get home. But maybe it's the same reason that John gives us that after this period of miracle, And after his teaching there in this desolate place, the people were ready to take him and crown him as king. And so Jesus rushes the disciples out the door before they have the ability to to play into this in any type of way, and he sends them out. And then Jesus dismisses the crowd, and then Jesus does the shocking, well, it shouldn't be shocking with Jesus, but does the unexpected, goes up on the mountain, pray. Remember, this is God in the flesh. With all of the power of the universe at his disposal, that he can speak to storms and they obey, and he can cast out thousands of demons at a time, and he can raise people from the dead, and he goes up on the mountain to pray. Because Jesus proves in this moment that true rest can only be found in God. And to neglect communion with God is to forsake rest altogether. And so Jesus prioritizes that rest with the Lord, and so we must prioritize that rest as well. There is no such thing as an excuse good enough to to pardon us from spending time with God. Jesus is tired. He hasn't gotten to eat unless he partook of the, the meal that he served. We don't know that he did, but he's just as exhausted as the 12. Nevertheless, he prioritizes his time with God. He understands his need for God. There is never a point where you or I are anywhere remotely close to the holiness of Jesus Christ. And if he needed to spend time in God's presence, how much more so do we need to spend time in God's presence through his word and through prayer? And so as he goes up on the mountain and gets alone with the Lord and prays, 
the disciples are left out on the Sea of Galilee and they find themselves in a little bit of a pickle. Because they're trying to row themselves across the Sea of Galilee and they are met with a headwind that is just impenetrable. Almost to the point where it seems like they're just sitting still because they're still rowing at 3 o'clock in the morning trying to get across the lake. And the lake ain't that big. We've been on it. They're still rowing against this headwind. And in his compassion, Jesus sees them. And so he comes to them in their struggle in the most shocking way. As he walks out to them on the water. Just like it's a floor of glass. He marches his way out there. And Mark gives us the puzzling statement as he notes that Jesus intended to pass them by. And we stop and we ask, what in the world? Jesus is coming to them. They're struggling. Is Jesus just like showing off here? That he can just march out there and it's no big deal. No wind's going to stop him. He's just going to outpace them and he'll meet them on the other side. I don't think that that's at all what Mark is trying to do. There are a lot of explanations, but I think what is clear is that just as Jesus prioritized the spiritual need of the crowd, he's prioritizing the spiritual need of the disciples right here and right now because he's teaching them something. Because Job tells us in Job chapter 9 that God is the one who stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Behold, God is the one who passes me by and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Twice in the Old Testament, God passes by first Moses and then Elijah in all of his glory as he reveals his nature and his glory to them, exposing himself before them in all of the wonder that he is as the God of the universe. And so that same word is what we see here as Jesus is going to pass them by in the sense that he is coming to them and he is exposing before them, revealing to them, if you will, his glory and his identity as the God who marches across the waves of the sea but the disciples don't get it they look out and just i think i I can't really fault them because if i looked out in the middle of the night and i saw somebody walking across the water i'd be a little bit panicked myself who is this that's floating across the water who is this that's coming to us on the waves and they immediately think it's got to be a ghost some water spirit has risen and it is coming and we are at our doom. We have been got, we've, we've been brought out here to die. And they're terrified. Until Jesus speaks into them what wasn't there before, which is peace and comfort. As he calls out to them in this moment, he says, take heart, do not be afraid. And in the middle of that, he says, it is I better translated, and as we see it show up again and again in the Gospel of John, I am. The Old Testament name of God. Take heart. I am. Do not be afraid. Jesus teaches them, exposes to them in that moment that he is in fact the God of the universe come in the flesh to provide for their deepest needs. But because they think that their needs are really just their physical needs, because they think that it is their their certain circumstance in this moment that they can't seem to get across this lake with all of the effort and energy that they can muster up inside of them, they miss the spiritual reality. 
They missed it when Jesus was sitting there and just as God had provided food in the desert place for the Israelites for all of those years as he provided for all of their needs. So Jesus sat there as God in the flesh feeding 5,000 plus individuals out of the palms of his hands and out of five loaves and two fish. The disciples were somehow spiritually blinded to it and still spiritually blind to Jesus' identity even in this moment. And yet Jesus is patient with them. Let me ask you an interesting question. Excluding Judas, at what point did these 11 truly become disciples of Jesus? In the sense of, at what point were they really Christians? Because Jesus hasn't died. He hasn't been raised. Paying the forgiveness of their sins. They're clearly on a learning journey. And what we're seeing is that as Jesus is bringing these men in under his wing and under his discipling ministry over them, we see that they don't get it all right away. They're still learning. They're still having all of their mental categories blown away by Jesus Christ again and again and again. And we cannot, 2,000 plus years later, who have the end of the story in our possession read into them any type of shame or disappointment when we're guilty of doing the exact same thing. As time and again God reveals his faithfulness to us and then we turn around and stem. Neglect his word. Neglect his command. And turn instead to something else that only God, for what only God can give to us. And we march ourselves headlong into disobedience, to spiritual hard-heartedness and blindness. Praise God that just as Jesus was patient with them, he's patient with you and me as well. And so Jesus provides for them. He rescues them in that moment. But he also provides not only for the neglected and the hard-hearted, he also provides for the desperate. And just briefly, as he comes to this time as he comes and he lands in the area of Gennesaret, which is actually the wind clearly blew them off course because Bethsaida would have been on the eastern side of the lake and Gennesaret is on the left or the western side of the lake. And so they are blown off course, but they land in this place and people immediately recognize them and they start coming, flocking to Jesus and his disciples, desperate to be healed. And just as we saw the woman... In her desperation, the woman with the bleeding condition who hoped to just, to just be able to swipe the fringe of Jesus' garment. So these po- folks have the exact same desperation. But just as that man who was paralyzed had friends who were willing to bring him, now we're seeing Jesus' reputation grow as people are going and getting sick people and bringing them to him. But what we don't see in this passage of Scripture is that any of these people are faithful to Jesus. That any of these people want any more than their immediate need met. And then they go on about their day. They go on about their life. There's no record that they became disciples themselves. No record that they ever became financial givers to the ministry of Jesus Christ. No record that they followed him anywhere from this point forward other than that they got there and in all of their superstition and all of their want and all of their self-centeredness and their, their need and desperation, they got what they needed from Jesus and then they went on and lived about their life. And yet what we see is that Jesus nevertheless provides for them. And gives them what it is that they want. 
as they touch the fringe of his garment and they receive healing. Now we can sit back and we can say, oh, but Jesus has an unending supply of power, so it really isn't that big of a deal. Jesus clearly felt it. Because if you remember the testimony of the woman who touched his garment and received healing, Jesus knew that that power went out from him. And every time that happened, Jesus was potentially faced with the reality that this person just got what they wanted, and that's it. It's heartbreaking to serve someone and watch them walk away without a thank you, without a can I give something back in return. And a lot of times we can become so consumed with what we have and so afraid that we might be being conned or scammed or taken, we never actually minister at all, spiritually or physically. Because we put more value on what we have than the God who calls us to give it away. And Jesus provides us with such a beautiful picture of unconditional love and faithfulness as Jesus is willing to be defrauded for the sake of displaying love. And he continued to do it as he was rejected, as he was neglected, as he was arrested tried and falsely accused and hung on a cross for a crime that he never committed and died a death that he never deserved. All for the sake of love. And providing for the single greatest need that you and I ever possibly had, which is forgiveness of our sins and restoration to a relationship with the God of the universe that we can't have because of our sin. Jesus Christ is the God incarnate, the God come in the flesh to selflessly serve mankind. And the way that he did it best was dying on the cross and raising to new life. Dying on the cross to bear the punishment that we deserve and raising to new life so that we might receive the life and the righteousness that we don't. That's what Jesus has come to do. And he selflessly gives of himself and of his power and of everything that he had at his disposal again and again and again and again until he laid it all out by dying on the cross for you and for me. So if you're a child of God in this room, you are so because of Jesus' selfless sacrifice, his compassionate ministry, not just for them, but for you. And so my question to you today is, how do you need to give everything to Jesus? What is it that you're holding back? What is it that you're waiting for? Is it more experience? Is it more time? Is it a better opportunity? Is it more money? Is it more whatever? Waiting for more will leave you standing in your tracks when Jesus has called you to simply be faithful, to trust him to do what you can't do, to step out into the world and manifest his compassion to your friends, to your family, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to strangers on the street, to one another in this room, by compassionately seeing the needs of others and meeting them with whatever you have at your disposal. That's what the early church did. They were so devoted to God and to one another that they were willing to sell property to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. 
Do you live with that same kind of devotion for one another? Or devotion to others? Are you in this room and you can't say that you have ever been a recipient of the compassion of Jesus Christ? You can be. The Bible says that God, in all of his love, because he is love, saw us in our sin and chose not to leave us there, but came in the flesh to selflessly lay down his life for our salvation. Believe that in your heart. When you surrender your life in faith to Jesus Christ today, the Bible says you will receive his compassion, you will be saved from your sins, and you will be given an everlasting life of joy in him. That can be yours today. So surrender your life to Jesus in this moment. Maybe you're a child of God today and you have been hoarding the compassion of God for too long and it's time that you find a way to give it away. I invite you, if you would take a moment, bow your head and close your eyes and ask God, pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the way that you have been hoarding the compassion and the grace and the mercy of God. Ask for his forgiveness and then ask the Holy Spirit to take you by the hand and lead you forward in the way that you can best serve him by serving others. Take a moment in prayer, and then I'll come back and close it out.